This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation. We are grateful for their continued support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners like you. Learn more at calliopeia.org. To make a donation, visit forthewild.world slash donate, or find us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us in other ways, consider sharing our episodes through social media or leaving us a review wherever you listen to the podcast. Hey, For the Wild community, it's Ayana here. We are so grateful to all of the amazing members of our community who contribute to bringing this podcast to life each week, including all of our generous supporters over on Patreon. To continue to bring listeners weekly content like this, we're extending an invitation to anyone who is able to stand with us in this work. We are dreaming into a goal of raising $5,000 per month over on Patreon. If you value this podcast and the great visionaries who have been featured on this platform, we invite you to join us on Patreon where you can pledge any monthly amount. We're so grateful for the generous sponsorships we've received but we cannot produce the podcast on their generosity alone. We need listener support to stay running and commercial-free. Join us at patreon.com slash for the wild. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Guy Ritani and Toad Andrew Dell of Permaqueer. And it's the culmination of all of the iterations and failures that creates a good system. And so the most beautiful thing about permaculture is it's about getting it wrong. It's about getting it wrong and having that curious, compassionate openness to trying again. Permaqueer is an ecological education project that focuses on accessibility to LGBTQIA and BIPOC folks. Toad and Guy, who run Permaqueer, teach permaculture through a queer lens with attention to the decolonization of its practices, with more inclusion and access to marginal demographics. To them, permaculture provides a method of accessing and managing resources that care for communities' needs with relatively small financial inputs. Permaqueer actively apply a critical lens to the inherent heteronormative, colonial, patriarchal, and capitalist white supremacy systems entwined in a lot of sustainability movements. Well, thank you both so much for joining me on this really beautiful day here at Cougar Mountain, and I will just mention I am doing this interview outside so you might hear the rustle of the wind in the redwood bows and potentially my cat Ro coming up and nuzzling me at times. So 
Yeah, I, I love being able to speak to you both from the garden direct to source. <laughs> so thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for having us, Ayana. My name is Toad Andrew Dell, like you said, uh, and I come from Permaqueer. Uh, my pronouns are they, them, and it. And I'm speaking to you here from um, unceded stolen country of uh, the Yungebe Nation in so-called Australia. And my name is Guy Rutani. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm calling in from uh, Wurundjeri country, uh, so-called Melbourne on stolen lands as well. Mm. Thank you for grounding us in that way. Well, yeah, I feel that many of our listeners are familiar with permaculture as a framework for ecological design. But to begin our conversation, I'm wondering if you can share why you co-created Permaqueer and what teaching permaculture through a queer lens means to you. Uh, thank you for that question. Um, yeah, why did we start Permaqueer? It was actually mm -hmm. at the end of our PDC that we did together in our final assignment. And I kind of put my hand up and I realized the people that I was seeing perform permaculture were often kind of wealthy white landowners. And I was hearing all this amazing work about people doing it in the suburbs, squats, in all kinds of different and unusual ways. But I wasn't seeing that in my communities. I also saw how um, the benefits of permaculture could really uplift and enrich a group of people. And I was seeing in how my kind of queer spaces, we weren't exactly having good access to food or community. And for me, I started it as kind of a means to bring permaculture and make it more accessible to, to queer folk as well as BIPOC communities as well. And I think as well, you know, being part of the beautiful queer community that we are and, 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 and seeing the sort of the impact that permaculture can have, it was necessary for us to create a safe space. And initially it came out of creating a safe environment for our community, but with, you know, queer theory and gender fullness and this concept that, you know, everything can be full of light and love and difference and change and transformation. Um, the sort of Venn diagram of, of queer lens and permaculture started creating these fantastic environments, fantastic designs. And I think um, the way that the true benefit of, of permaculture through a queer lens is yet to fully unfold, but I, I feel so grateful that we get to be in this environment and, and get to design in, in this in this way with our, our community as well. One of the um, really beautiful questions that we got asked when we were um, starting to run some events, uh, we were asking for some collaboration with Tyson Younger Porter, was he asked um, us, are you a bunch of queers doing permaculture or are you queering permaculture? And that was actually a really great prompt for us to sit back and assess, um, are we just a bunch of queers doing permaculture or how do we actually queer and bring our culture into our into these spaces and this is still iterative and things that we're working on and, and sinking into as well mm. thank you both so much and i interviewed tyson a few months ago now and i could imagine him asking you that question <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah i i think more and more folks are meaningfully coming to the understanding that queerness is not just about individual identity, the physical body, gender, or sexuality alone. And so it makes sense that we see 
a rise in the call to queer many different spaces that have been inherently heteronormative as a byproduct of society. But at the same time, I think about how this also means there is a risk for co-optation into practices that are shallow and marketable. I'm curious to ask for those of us who want to continue uplifting queerness, how discerning do we need to be as well to ensure that this change in paradigm is truly something that is meaningful and long-lasting? I think, you know, one of the big things that can happen, especially in in organizations and in, in businesses, when we try to have inclusivity and and you know diversity training, this whole concept of of how do we bridge these things, um, it's important to make sure that the voices that currently exist in these environments are the ones being listened to. So you know you can have as many queer people or you know gender diverse or you know depends whatever kind of diversity they're trying to integrate, but if they're on on these boards or on these decision panels um, to just be there, um, that's that's not enough. And we find this happening more often than not because, you know, queerness and, and these perspectives, they go against a lot of the foundational thinking that a lot of people are conditioned to. So we need to understand that it's not enough just to be in community with these people. We have to be asking what is their opinion of it? What is what would they do differently? How would we integrate their lens into a culture that we can both have and not have fear or frustration or any kind of pre-existing prejudice that we may not even know that we have that for some reason we're not going to to benefit from this collaboration of diversity. And I think it's a it's an interesting line to walk, especially in organizations when when things can be co-opted and sort of brutalized in a in a inauthentic way. I think you really hit a lot of it on the head there. Um, you need to be able to bring your culture into it. it it's you know, uh, and this kind of this brings up to me the idea of liberation versus equality. Uh, equality is um I, as a queer person, can be just as violent or appropriative or extractive as the overcultural uh, kind of cishet white maleness of it all. Uh, whereas liberation for me is taking my queer culture and making it something that doesn't, it, it isn't just, oh, I'm equal to you, we're the same. It's actually, I am different to you. Uh, and that is beautiful diversity there. That is different culture and experience. And kind of integrating that in these spaces to avoid co-option would be to me bringing my culture into that space. Uh, not just, oh, look, I am just like you, except I, you know, am queer on the weekends. It's queer for me is a way of of, of being. And I think we've seen a lot of co-opting, um, which is a really complex thing because we had queer liberation. And then we, um, a lot of, we lost a lot of our kind of our teeth and our nails uh, in the gay rights movement, where we saw a lot of us, uh, a lot of the way that we were marketing ourselves to be more accessible and less scary was the whole, we're just like you, we're just like whatever. And for me, queerness is kind of inherently anti-colonial because I see um, one of the big kind of uh, principles of colonialism is homogeneity. And queerness uh, is, is personal. Gender is personal. Sexuality is personal. It, it, it can't be often uh, coined into these tiny little boxes uh, that exist 
purely to be kind of in a reductionist lens. And it exists like my queerness is contextual as well. It's, it's based upon the context of my community, the land I'm, I'm living on and like where I am in my life. So I see a lot of it being reduced down to uh, like marketable ways. And so I have to ask, I, when in that space, I always have to ask, are we appealing to our oppressors and making it ourselves more appealing to them by making ourselves less frightening and kind of falling in line with colonial violence? And if we are, that's not very queer to me. <laughs> Sorry, that's a bit of a roundabout way to answer that. And also on that notion of heteronormativity, like that's, it's, it's, it's incredibly pervasive. And, and another sort of misunderstanding that can happen is the belief that, you know, if someone is gay, they fall under the LGBTQIA umbrella and therefore they are an appropriate representative of all things that are queer. But it's, it's so much more complex than that. We have, you know, huge issues of heteronormativity that's just re-disguised in primarily cis white gay spaces and that affords these spaces the privileges and the power structures that come along with heteronormativity but often it's misguided in in believing that because we have you know this difference in sexuality that somehow radically changed the ideology behind it. But we see time and time again, heteronormativity just repackaging itself in a, in a different way. And we have to constantly be critical about it. So to the, to the aspect of, you know, how do we make sure that this new paradigm is meaningful and long lasting? The same with permaculture, you know, you, when you start your journey in permaculture, you just learn more and more context, you learn more and more tools, you learn more and more understandings. That's in a, in a different way, similar to queerness as well, because it takes more understanding, more education, more community to understand what, what is it that we're getting at here? What does it mean? What does your own relationship with queerness mean? And that doesn't have to be you, you know, dressing a certain way or, or changing your sexuality or changing your identity what queer looks like for you and what queer looks like for someone else is completely different things. And when we start thinking about queerness as a verb in everyday actions and behaviors, this idea of questioning in a beautiful, loving way, how could something be different? How could something be unique? How can we adjust things and how can we transform things? For me, that's the act of the verbing of, of queer, of queerness. Um, I think everyone figuring out what that means for them and, and learning more about it from the queer community can only benefit everyone. And I believe that's a, a huge part in ensuring that this paradigm shift is, is meaningful and long lasting because people get their own relationship to what it is. And it doesn't belong to me, it doesn't belong to Toad, it doesn't belong to Panaqueer, it belongs to everyone. Yeah, like queerness is so personal and um, <laughs> diverse that I'm sure that there will be people who will listen to this and think, well, that's not my queerness. Uh, queerness really manifests like this and that's valid. Uh, and that's part of the complexity of it all. And I think in colonial culture, we really like to kind of fit it into these little boxes. And like I was saying, just being either homosexual, pansexual, bisexual, any or any kind of gender divergence doesn't also inherently queer you. 
uh, historically to be queer was in our cult, in Western culture, was to be extremely ostracized. It was often radicalized you, considering the fact that you no longer had access to, um, you know, uh, community, healthcare, safety, uh, resources. Um, so our community had to basically create community and challenge things. And this was predominantly led by people of color and by trans women. Uh, <laughs> and this is unfortunately like, and often still the most queer. These are often the people that we see attacked the most, uh, both within quote unquote queer communities and outside of queer communities as well. Thank you both for that. And I know that you're very vocal about the ways in which ecological sustainability movements continue to perpetuate white supremacy, heteronormativity, patriarchy, and capitalism. And for so long, environmental movements have negated this charge because they argue that their pursuits and causes are objectively positive because they're on behalf of the so-called natural world. But we have to recognize that there is a direct relationship between these movements and colonization and capitalism. In fact, in some ways, we could think of these movements as a direct byproduct. And it's a big inquiry to take on because we know that so many folks come to permaculture because they're really disenchanted with capitalism and supremacy. But that isn't enough. So. I wonder if you could elaborate a bit more mm -hmm. on how you see sustainability movements perpetuating inequality and what are some examples of how this remodeling happens? Gosh, I mean, you know, greenwashing is rampant. When under, in, in Western colonial civilizations and, 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 and cities and countries, when from the moment you're born till, till now, the the model of existence exists all around you and that that's capitalism and that's colonialism and that's white supremacy. When the only models of existence exist under those power structures, no matter how hard you try to step outside of them, they are so central to how you think. And this is something we have to be critically aware of. And we see this happen time and time again in permaculture spaces where, you know, exorbitant charges and fees are put upon a course that is, you know, how can we liberate ourselves from these systems? But it's only accessible to upper class affluent individuals. And these are people that don't need necessarily need help in this system. And so when, when we have these insidious sort of roots of capitalism and colonialism come through that actually shunt out the people that are already being oppressed and ostracized and you know disadvantaged by the system there's no actual feedback to correct that system and we have this happen time and time again where the people who are at the bottom who are don't have access to housing or funding or healthcare if they can't make any structural change and they don't get allowed the space, then it's just the same remodeling of this violence. So it's not radical if you don't have accessibility to people who don't have time and who don't have money. And so that's an issue because it's like, well, you know, as a permaculture teacher or as someone, you know, you have to be compensated for your labor. 
But that in and of itself is, has colonial and white supremacist tendrils within it. And so we really have to sit back and at every single point examine what are we doing and where is the core of it? And unfortunately, we don't have the answers for that, but we do have a commitment to constantly bringing up that question. And we also have a commitment to constantly bring up that question more. And that's what we're trying to do here in Permaqueer. And we're still on our journey. Everyone's on the anti-racism journey, but it's about making sure we start getting onto that, we start educating each other, and we start working as a community to move through that. But I'll pass that to you now, Todd, if you want to speak to... Yeah, I think um, we see some really insidious things. Even have, I'll speak to permaculture specifically. Uh, I was given these words by our permaculture grandmother, Tamara Griffith. Uh, one of these two words are spermaculture and permacolonialism. Spermaculture is we see a lot of uh, gatekeeping in our communities by wealthy old white men who are landowners and kind of directing the narrative of what permaculture is. And this all, this will, this inherently ties into permacolonialism as well, I think, because a lot of what people are teaching sometimes as permaculture is indigenous technologies around land use being marketed as permaculture. You know, come to my land and I'll show you how to dig swales and do these these specific land techs, that's permaculture. When actually it's a systems thinking approach. And sometimes maybe these technologies are, you know, are relevant if with the right people in collaboration, uh, if, it, if it's done well. But a lot of the time it's just, like I said, it's repackaged, repurposed indigenous technologies being sold by old wealthy white men who are landowners and, on stolen country. As well. Yeah. A another tendril of this is people who have access to this information in a traditional sense, so Indigenous people, um, First Nations, they don't necessarily always operate to the same degree as white people and white systems. And this is, this is the structural inequality here because all of a sudden you have, you know, some farmer in, you know, Southeast Asia who's been practicing this technique their entire life. They don't know how, you know, some YouTube or TikTok or, or all of this, this framework works. They don't have an editing system. They don't have the whole network of, you know, creatives in Western culture. And so thus they can't produce this gigantic, purely marketable, pristine, ready to, ready to sell, you know, packaged thing in the same capacity that someone who knows systems of white supremacy, knows systems of financial flow and knows how to tap within that white market. And so therefore someone who knows this and practices this information does not have the same access to financially bankroll this technique in the same way that white people do. And we see this happening a lot. You know, this, what was that? This banana leaf something soil building technique that this person on YouTube created and it just became this big hole. Oh, this is this technique, this is mine. Meanwhile, farmers for time and millennium have been doing this. They just haven't packaged it and put it onto the market in the same way that this person had access to. So questioning constantly. Sorry, I jumped in there and hijacked that off you, but I'll, <laughs> I'll pass it back to you. No worries. Thank you. Yeah, that sums it up pretty well with that kind of aspect of permaculture, permacolonialism. And then we also see, um, you know, green missionary work in permaculture. Um, some work, I've seen some really incredible work by people like Morai Gamble and Rosemary Morrow, who have done really beautiful work with refugees and displaced people. 
um, and have always like I think in, in talking with them they've both always said like I'm always questioning how am I doing this am I doing it in the right relationship and just I really have faith in those people and then I've also seen people who have come from a historically quite um, upper class have gone to I think this person went to Papua New Guinea uh, pumped a huge amount of, amount of family money into it and basically created a, like a mini food forest, but didn't actually educate the locals on how to do it. So they became reliant upon this outside man's influence uh, to become quote unquote self-sufficient. Yeah. And that was, that was a really complex thing to hear and be in dialogue with this person about. Uh, and then of course they were also taking photos of, you know, the quote unquote poor brown people and then selling those photos in galleries to make money, to raise money for them. So it's a lot of well-meaning white people kind of taking advantage of marginalized people without even realizing it. And that's a complex thing to unpack as well, particularly because like you have these people who are thinking that they're doing well and can be taking advantage. And that is a, often a hard dialogue to have with someone. And I think a really important thing to mention as well is what is the objective of what we're trying to do? And that's something that we have to keep on popping back in. And that's something that capitalism and colonialism doesn't tell you, it just like subtly conditions you. And when it comes to land rights and land ownership, we, you know, in so many spaces, we see this acknowledgement to indigenous people. We see this like attempt at rectifying or, or asking for a treaty or whatever it looks like in a cultural context. But that doesn't get followed up with pragmatic giving back of land and we need to really question in which part of our whole system and strategy are we planning on doing that in our minds is this something that we're saying we're doing we're signaling that we believe in but we don't actually know how because we don't view it as a possibility and that happens a lot and we really need to be looking at the reality that in a lot of these spaces specifically here specifically here in uh nam you know the First Nations people, Aboriginals of this land, lived in harmony with our environment for 60,000 years, time immemorial. This context that we live in, this climate crisis that we have, has happened within the last 100, 200 years. And still, for some reason, the even in a lot of sort of permaculture and queer spaces, we don't, we don't, have that core understanding that we need to shift land ownership, land right, land leadership, back to the people who know culturally this landscape, how to manage it. And, and the structural aspect of that is buried within conversation. It's buried within plans. It's buried within you know, agendas and meetings. And we need to constantly stop these, these, these instances and have a conversation about what is our objective here and realign that objective to giving land back to recognizing where capitalism and colonialism exists in all of our behaviors and acknowledge that it does and it it it, it will always inform and and once we come from that perspective from there on the decision making we make that, that and the implications of our behavior actually starts to deal with it. And this is something that I'm not seeing. I'm seeing tokenistic 
you know, virtue signaling about a desire to, you know, stop capitalism, colonialism, and white supremacy, but it's not actually backed up by behavior. And on top of that, capitalism and colonialism has this toxic positivity that makes it uncomfortable for people to deal with the reality of this. And one of the most insidious things about white supremacy is it's, it's kind of created this weird notion that being uncomfortable is wrong and no one should ever be uncomfortable because that, that doesn't allow conversations to be had. That means when people within systems of white supremacy and, and white privilege feel uncomfortable, they don't respond in a, in a useful and pragmatic way. It's push away, it's erase, and it's not deal with it. And, and that's a pattern that must stop. Yeah, both of you said really powerful things in this last response, and there's a lot there to sit with and unpack and analyze for all of us listening, our own personal attachments to these systems and what is just for show to make ourselves feel better about ourselves and what's real and tangible and I wanted to bring up a post titled Responding as a Community to Climate Change. And Guy, you write, quote, We know the edge is where it's at and to value the marginal. Our desire is to integrate all the deep pools of knowledge and open up other areas of humanity's realm of acceptance so we can create this new future. We're entering an era of science fiction at the moment in that we don't have a rule book anymore for what's going to happen, and the outcome will be only what we make it. Now is the time to open up all our borders and collaborate with people, ideas, identities, cultures, and get as creative as possible, end quote. And I'd, I'd like to now move into a conversation on how you are taking a nuanced approach to looking at the spaces and intersections of permaculture that provide really fruitful knowledge as folks begin to map out different lifestyles. Because I do think there is something to be said that, or about the ways that environmental movements can be co-opted and used against people to further nationalism and the closures of borders, and how with this in mind, now is a really critical time to be making these interventions and taking a sort of DIY approach. So. What intersections of permaculture are you most excited about working with at this point in time? 
Well, I think right now my biggest excitement in combating these these issues that we have and and implementing the true power of permaculture and queerness starts from building a point of resilience and having a just recovery. And what that looks like is on a very small community household and individual scale. What does this, you know, decolonizing or recreating or creating sustainable systems, what does that look like in the most micro environment? So we're seeing surges of, you know, community restorative and transformative justice accountability protocols and, and these things coming into play. And we're seeing what it looks like to fill up our own cup. And so, you know, the areas of social justice, of community development, of emotional understanding and, and emotional intelligence development, and also dealing with traumas and healing as communities, these sort of ways that we build fat in very, very small household community levels is how we build the capacity to actually collaborate on a larger scale. And so for me, it's so, so, so exciting seeing all of these little initiatives and little networks pop up here and there, neighborhood systems, you know, food network systems or little trading bartering systems. And I'm starting to see this redness, this fat that allows people to actually have the energy to collaborate with each other. And so for me, I'm seeing a whole lot of push towards introspection and, and what does it mean for us to shift? Um, a huge part, especially al along the continuum of, you know, colonialism, capitalism, I mean, for me, I mean, it's not really a, a linear thing, but somewhere along there, there's, you know, permaculture and its capacity to transition and then we have re-indigenization and, and indigenous ways of living. And somewhere along the spectrum, we, we, we connect to what it means to be in community with ourselves, what it means to love ourselves, what it means to love our uh, community and our family, and then also what it also means to be ourselves. So when we're shifting from colonial Western overculture that we know has a pattern of degeneration, and that's why we're in this climate crisis at the moment, um, and shifting into healthier cultures that are in reciprocity with our environment that some of us have connection through through being you know indigenous or BIPOC or have connection to place and some of us don't and what that looks like is figuring out what right relationship is with you and the environment and a really awesome place to start and some place we're seeing a lot is finding out ancestrally where, where do you exist in this world how do you exist in this world and what would, look like, what would that look like in right relationship? And so we're seeing this really fantastic intersection of people connecting to what it historically meant, ancestrally meant to be then, be that a land practice or a location geographically on the world where they, you know, feel they belong. Because a lot of, you know, a lot of our societies are just displaced people, deeply displaced people. And when we see people colliding with a sense of self and a sense of place on the environment, on the, on, on the, earth, the planet Earth, um, all of a sudden, the reason we use permaculture principles become a whole lot more valuable. The reason 
we decide to live in reciprocity becomes more personal than it was before. And when we're coming from these cities of, you know, concrete and exhaust fumes, when we know where our feet belong in the soil is on the other side of the planet, or we've never even been there before. If you're able to connect to that culture in some way, shape or form, it's profound. It's been profound for me. I've witnessed it being profound for a lot of people. And it makes me so excited to work in this space. And so as Permaqueer, we are trying to develop PDC that can be culturally relevant to you. And that's not us teaching you a culture that doesn't belong to us. It's how do we network between all of the amazing teachers that we have all over the world. And this is an issue that we're having in permaculture is, you know, we have amazing BIPOC teachers everywhere. They just don't get the same mic time as everyone else. And so what would that look like in a way of collaborating? So I don't even know. I think I just ran right off from the question, but I get really excited when permaculture collides with what your identity is and what your identity means to you in terms of place. Mm -hmm. I hope I answered that question. (laughs) No, it's good. I love runaway responses because you're being (laughs) present with where you're at and what the question a sparks in you and that's what the questions are for they're diving boards into the deep end so I appreciated it mm-hmm. and <laughs> I'll say something that continues to come up for me especially for those of us who are living in societies where rapid consumption is really pushed to uphold the economic system is the revitalization around ethics of frugality and I'd love to hear how this personally shows up in your own designing ethics and lifestyle. I think frugality and how it kind of comes into everything is when we begin to think about in this culture, we we value the more and the more and the more. And we all know this and we all kind of know how this can negatively affect us to kind of just expecting and entitlement and things like that. And frugality, I think for me, a lot of it is learning how to step outside of the kind of exponential growth model. And it's not just that, it's not getting my dopamine and serotonin kicks from from buying the new thing that will soon be outdated. It's learning how to rewire a lot of my, engage in neuroplasticity even, of being able to change how I relate to landscape and my community. Suddenly I'm not looking to get that dopamine hit from buying something. I'm looking at it to being able to to make olives or do this or do that. And it's basically, it, for me, it's changing worldview almost. Uh, it, it becomes more experiential. It becomes more personal. Everything we do, uh, it has meaning and importance. Everything becomes ceremony and ritual even. And I find that that's a really beautiful process. Um, and I know at the moment, I when I was living uh, down in Nam, uh, so-called Melbourne, We had these really beautiful food systems in place. Everything worked well. Everything felt delightful to do. And uh, I've moved up north. Um, I'm in the process of resetting my systems and getting that all sorted, all my food systems. But I don't have that at the moment. Uh, I'm not able to live uh, in in a lot of the frugal ways that I wanted to. Um, I am isolated on a mountain, which requires fossil fuels to to get anywhere. Uh, And I, I really feel how quickly everything becomes impersonal. My, my food supply, my, my pleasure, my everything, it 
becomes this streamlined process, which I don't even begin to question and I feel entitled towards. So for me, a lot of it is it's anchoring it back in the slow and steady solutions that really enrich us in a way that isn't just a quick hit. Uh, do you have anything you want to add to that, Guy? One part of that is the agency. And I think this is the most important part of frugality and, and, and thrifting is not the money you save, is the agency in life that you have. You realise that this pressure, this preordained, you know, need to have things or wanting to buy dinner or wanting to get a coffee or whatever it looks like. This weird process happens when you resist that urge, like you said, that dopamine hit or, or whatever it, it looks like. And then you're suspended in this place where you don't get what you thought you want but then you realize you still have agency outside of that. And, you know, consumer habits are a huge and powerful and, and very, very insidious way that capitalism conditions us. And so not only is frugality and, and, and thrifting about, you know, valuing, you know, sustainable sources of where, our, our products come from or ensuring that we're not spending things, money or resources that we don't necessarily need to, but we're also not constantly engaging in conditioning, conditioning of capitalism, conditioning of white supremacy, conditioning of materialistic us versus them. And by us versus them, I mean us versus objects. And this idea of us versus objects is othering us from our environment and anything in this current crisis that we we're in that constantly others us from living in reciprocity and upholding the manner of all things around us is damaging and it's a part of the problem and when we you know have these ethics and are frugal we realize, okay, what do we actually need? All right, this is what I what I actually need. And then you still come through on those ethics and you realize, are there sustainable sources for me to get there? And then all of a sudden, with systems thinking about how we can override these damaging systems to our environment. And the real importance of frugality and thrifting ethics is the systemic change that it has the capacity of when we stop engaging with these systems when we realize that we're not reliant on them and we actually don't need to be, and we never needed to be. And how do we start prioritizing sustainable systems that care about the environment, that care about minorities, that realize the world doesn't have to be in this, you know, top-down hierarchical, someone has to lose relationship because that's not natural but we believe it is. And the reason we believe it is, is because we keep on having these micro conditions of how we need to objectify things. And I believe that that is perpetuated through stray runaway consumer habits. And so while frugality and thrift engaging in, in these ways of spending or relating allows you to have more resources and engage in things in a more meaningful and transformative way it also cuts you off from that constant conditioning 
in this culture, in this crisis, that's it's crucial. It's crucial for our transformation as a society. What am I? both done a lot of organizing around permaculture in response to climate change. And this is such a big topic, but I always like to bring this up when I talk to folks involved with permaculture, because I remember when I was in the process of learning these practices, such a big part of that journey was reading and studying about weather and frost times and then planning around that. And now we find ourselves living in a world where we can't rely on this information to the extent that it was relied upon in the past. So how are you all thinking about this facet of permaculture and our capacity to plan and develop and cultivate resilience when climate change is so very inconsistent? I think what we largely need to do is kind of obviously look to and be in collaboration, not appropriation with what people are doing already traditionally on the land. Uh, and that can be through dialogue and kind of whatever work that needs to be, but also not taking that fixed white anthropological gaze, knowing that cultures have migrated, cultures have uh, changed how they relate to landscape. And it's kind of, you know, it's one of those permaculture principles of um, creatively responding to change. And to be honest, I don't have a lot of the answers. Uh, there's some really amazing people who are headlining this work. Uh, Daryl Taylor has really been focusing a lot of his life's work on us in Australia entering the Pyrocene because we are starting to see out of control bushfires uh, like every year or every couple of years, like, like things we haven't ever seen before. And so there are people pioneering this work and we do need to kind of get behind them. And um, yeah, do you have anything you wanted to add to that guy? Yeah, I think um, this whole idea of, you know, unknown walking into these, you know, crazy, unpredictable environments, it's really making us realize that A, we need to, like you said, develop resilience um, and B, we don't have much time to do that. And so we really need to think about, you know, even off the back of that concept of frugality, you know, how do we create sustainable food network systems? How do we create sustainable communities? What does that even look like? And there's many, many examples of, of this working incredibly successfully all over the world. So it's not something that's impossible, but it's something that we need to tune into. And so, you know, with changes in seasons, changes in environment, obviously there's an, a need for diversity of, I mean, taking it into a food perspective, we need to have a diversity of plants. We need to have a diversity of, you know, 
heirloom, you know, climatically developed plants that are conditioned to and acclimatized to specific environments and they are developing and reseeding every single year and, you know, re-acclimatizing to that specific context. Now, if we don't have a diverse range of, of farms and a diverse range of plants and, you know, responding biologically to the environment as it is changing, that's cutting off resilience. So, you know, to answer the question, we need to be realizing the systems we depend on, our food systems, our community systems, definitely our water systems, are all our own responsibility. And if you're listening and you're buying your groceries from a supermarket and all of your water comes from a town tap supply, this is for you. These systems that these come from are not sustainable. They're giant giant systems integrated and some of them are fantastic but with the calamities that we are facing and with the uncertainties that we are facing unfortunately it's not actually secure look at what happened in Johannesburg with the whole day zero when they're running out of water fortunately that shows the power of human transformation but it also shows some things that we believe are given some things we believe we're entitled to are not and these are things that we're going to be dawning on when we when we face the reality of climate change. And so, you know, there's there's infinite ways that we can build resilience. I, you know, we could go through a, a whole bunch of them, but realistically it's about what's what's contextually specific and culturally specific to you. And that's actually your responsibility. And so if we have more people realizing what does it mean to be responsible for feeding myself? What does it mean for being responsible for my environment? Obviously, privilege comes in hugely to that. And, and that's an ongoing conversation that we continue to have. But, you know, in the likes of Mianjin, we're having, you know, guerrilla gardening, reclaiming government land so that we can have community gardens. And, you know, that's an option. There are options and it's difficult, but unfortunately the opportunity cost of having to problem solve this difficulty is not problem solving it. And the cost of that is just dealing with the fact that food systems might run out, water systems might run out, and either you're waiting around for that to happen or you're pragmatically thinking ahead and using what you can and what you have to make change. And that's a huge thing for me to say and a huge thing to say you have to do it because obviously there's so many complexities in and around that. But until we realise that it is our responsibility and our government bodies and our corporate bodies are not and will not take responsibility for this. We garner something called agency. And I think that's one of the biggest things that our agency is to realize we have a responsibility to building resilience. We have a responsibility to understanding what that looks like in our community and our culture and our landscape. And we have a responsibility to demand that. And I don't know what that specifically looks like, but I believe that that's how, you know, I don't, I don't know what's coming with, with this unpredictable weather patterns. And I can't say what will happen all around the world, but it's our responsibility to try and prepare ourselves. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that response to a very complex question that none of us can fully mm -hmm. answer. <laughs> so... Uh, as we come to a close, I just have two final questions, and they are 
very much inspired by some of Permaqueer's reflections on the disconnection between solutions and actions. So I wonder if you could each share a piece of advice for folks who are just beginning to dip their toes in the world of permaculture, and then a second piece of advice for folks who are a little bit more embedded in permaculture, perhaps some wisdom that you wish you'd known in the past and I know the advice can't be too specific because we're all listening in from such varying bioregions, but you're more than welcome to make this as practical as you'd like. I think for people who are getting into permaculture for the first time, it's exciting. It really is. And it feels like the whole world is opening up before you. And I think it's important to kind of try and embody a sense of curiosity around it all and also being critical. I don't think that these two things can be mutually exclusive. Uh, we always need to be questioning, is this, in, is this in service of the people who are living on this land? Is it in service of the community? Is it in service of the actual land itself? Oh, it is, that's fantastic. And just approaching everything with a really curious desire to learn more. And understand that we are all in iteration. Uh, this entire process that we call permaculture is in iteration. So it's good to challenge things. It's good to question things. And that isn't an attack. That is that can only enrich us by questioning things and asking the sometimes difficult questions. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, it's often in the people who come with the freshest eyes that turn things up the most, that challenge old guards, challenge old ideals that should be challenged. Uh, and when, you, when you're in a culture for a really long time, sometimes you can't see them. So I think our, one of permaculture's greatest assets are the people who are coming to it for the first time, who still hold that really deep curiosity and joy that you know, we try and foster as we learn more and more, but that fresh eyes are actually so valuable. And I think to um, people who've been embroiled in permaculture for a longer time, I think I would say, one of the things that we forget the most is that the social ecology is as complex and nuanced and requires as much skill to work with as the actual um, uh, landscape-based ecology. You know, with the, you know, the traditional permaculture dream of we're all gonna buy land and start an eco-village, people do that. And it's not that they can't get the crops to grow, it's that they can't get along. We need to be more trauma-informed. We need to be able to relate better. We need to have skills and conflict resolution. Um, how do we deal with harm? How do we deal with abuse? How do, we, how do we receive and give critique? These are all things that we really need to kind of sink into and be able to, to hold better, I believe. Uh, would you want to speak now, Guy? Yeah. I'd say to people joining permaculture, permaculture looks like so many different things. Permaculture is a tool set, a design system that helps you think about things in a way that is truly sustainable. And what permaculture might look like for you is completely different for somebody else. And know that whatever your passions are, there's a way that you can fit permaculture into that. So in, in one sense, you know, don't constrict your idea of what permaculture can be to anything because that there stops you from being able to queer the capacity of how you use permaculture in terms of design. Um, and secondly, the biggest forgiveness that's given by permaculture, I believe, is the concept of iterations. And in societies that we come from, especially when you're just learning about what permaculture is, you know, 
chances are you may be coming from a colonial Western you know, capitalist background. And one of the biggest things that's imposed on us in this, in this space is that things kind of have to be perfect. Things have to, have to be ready. They have to be on time. They have to be this end product. And that's not how nature works. That's not how permaculture works. And it's the culmination of all of the iterations and failures that creates a good system. And so the most beautiful thing about permaculture is it's about getting it wrong. It's about getting it wrong and having that curious, compassionate openness to trying again. I'll tell you now, your systems will fail and the, the test of whether or not you can become good at, at designing things is how you can listen to that failure and how that failure can inform moving forward. Just the same way we're watching the failure of all of these systems around the world and how well are we gonna to listen to that? And what I'd say to people already embedded in permaculture is that you have a responsibility. You have access and practice in a fantastic realm of design that has a huge amount of transformational capacity. And I want people to know what that responsibility looks like. When we're further along in our journey, you know, we, ha we have more understanding, we have more capacity. And I don't want people to ever forget that things are new, things can always be created. And if you've been here for a while, know that you have more of a capacity to have an impact. And whatever that means for you, I, I challenge you to enjoy that. And I challenge you to lean into that because we need more of that in the world. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Yeah. And before we say goodbye, I'm wondering how folks can engage with and support Permaqueer. Um, so we have uh, Permaqueer on Facebook. It's just Permaqueer. So P-I-M-I-Q-U-E-E-R. And we're also on Instagram, perma.queer. Uh, currently, we are developing our open source network website, but that's not up yet. So um, those two, just those socials for now. And we'll probably give you our contacts to put in a link or something. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And um, thank you so much for having us on this podcast, Ayana. It was really, really lovely to be able to speak and share kind of our experience of Permaqueer. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by Eliza Edens and India Blue and Joshua. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, and Francesca Glassbell.